Greetings and salutations to our wonderful Life and Books and Everything listeners. Glad to have you with us again and hope you're having a great day wherever you are listening to this. I am joined with Justin and Colin and I'll introduce our special guest in just a moment, but we're glad to have you with us again and we're glad to be sponsored by Crossway Books. And uh, many fine books coming out. I'm, I can't even remember which ones I've mentioned before, but as we are now in November, and yes, it is now legal to play all the Christmas music that you want. Uh, no, Colin says no. Why do you hate Thanksgiving so much, Kevin? I love Thanksgiving. No, I, I, I hear you. We don't turn it on in our house. But really, you only get the chance at the Christmas music once a year. Why not have a few extra weeks? Thanksgiving, or as they call it in Michigan, the another day the Lions lose. <laughs> but yes, um, I, I'm restraining myself by not turning this whole podcast into just, uh, just kind of a play-by-play recap of the Michigan-Michigan State game from Saturday. Was that not a great game? I mean, for a bonus fan, episode on that. Bonus episode. Um, yeah, where's where's my agent? Can we get Kenneth Walker the third on here? Talk to him. Name, image, and likeness, Kevin. Yeah, that's right. Okay, we'll we'll give him something. All right, I didn't mention the good news of great joy by John Piper. So this is uh, one of well, obviously there's lots of Piper books, but a great resource as you come into the Advent season in a few weeks. So you may want to. Look at that. And I think we mentioned before the ESV Concise Study Bible, which came out in October. And looking forward to using that. So good to have you all with us. And our special guest today is Dr. Douglas J. Moo. That sounds very impressive. Can we call you Doug? Please. All right. Thank you. And uh, Doug has a PhD from the University of St. Andrews, and he is a professor of New Testament at Wheaton, and he has many, many fine books out. And we are here to talk to him about a new book, A Theology of Paul and His Letters, The Gift of the New Realm in Christ, which has just come out from Zondervan Academic. It's a very impressive work, and we're going to hear more about this book and what's in it and how he wrote such a big, thick book. And uh, first, we want to hear a little bit about you and your life, ministry, family. Doug, tell us, where are you from, and how did you get to be a professor at Wheaton? Yeah, I actually was converted as a senior in college, uh, planning to go, to go to law school at that point. Uh, but when I became a Christian, I decided I wanted to figure out what this new faith was all about. So I uh, changed my course and enrolled in seminary instead at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I uh, did my Master's of Divinity there, had the opportunity while I was there both to uh, work as associate pastor in a local church and to teach a course at the seminary. I quickly realized that I would be a horrible pastor. Uh, I would barricade myself in my office, over-preparing all my sermons, and avoiding human contact as much as possible. Uh, just who I was, my gift set, my personality. So rather than inflicting myself on a poor church, uh, I decided to go on and do a PhD at St. Andrews. Uh, in God's grace, I was able to get a position back at the school I did my work at, Trinity Divinity School, taught there for 23 years, uh, and then moved over to Wheaton, where I've been for 21 years. Um, throughout that time, uh, one of the uh, animating principles of my life and ministry has been a famous quote from Johann Albrecht Bengel, a great pietist scholar, apply yourself wholly to the text, apply the text wholly to yourself. And uh, I, I hope I've done decently on both sides of that. Uh, others will have to uh, judge. But, but if you ask what, what animates me, it's uh, just my love of getting into the text and figuring out what's going on there. Uh, and then finding ways to communicate that text to people, whether speaking, writing, or in other venues. That's great. I, I'm just curious, you, you talked about not going into pastoral ministry. At Wheaton, you must have 
students come up to you all the time, help me, Dr. Mu, how, should I go into the academy? Should I go into pastoral ministry? How do you help students think through that? Well, yeah, number one, of course, is just the objective criteria. If a student wants to go on to a PhD, uh, we need to look at, uh, well, how well have they done in their coursework here? What are their papers like? Are they of the quality that might fit them to do PhD work? Uh, unfortunately, a lot of students have a vision of doing a PhD, but maybe don't have uh, all of the required uh, uh, kind of background or something to, to do the PhD. Uh, right now, it's a very tough market as well for PhDs to find a teaching spot. Very, very tough. So we're finding more and more of our own PhD grads looking at options, working with a publishing house, you know, as terrible as that would be. Justin can talk about that. Um, or uh, a theologian pastor, pastor theologian, wherever you want to put the emphasis there. Uh, or working in Christian schools. Uh, so, uh, and of course, overseas, there are so great opportunities overseas to, to serve in, in, in the teaching world. Um, just say a little bit about your your family. You're married, kids? Yeah. Jenny and I are, have been married for 48 years. We uh, have five children, all married, 13 grandkids. Our children uh, have scattered as far as away from us as possible. Uh, so it tells you something about our parenting. Uh, our, the, the, the child who's closest to us lives uh, six hours away, and we have ch children in, in Europe, uh, different parts of the U.S. But um, uh, at this point, all the kids are following the Lord. All their spouses are following the Lord. Uh, Jenny and I don't care that much where they live as long as they're living in Christ. Yeah, that's wonderful. And we were just—usually we start Life and Books and Everything with— um, too many minutes of college football banter or some sort of other sports banter, which is where everyone just keeps hitting the 30-second fast-forward on the <laughs> podcast. What uh, what sort of hobbies, what sort of things do you do for fun? I think I have it right. You're you're an outdoorsman. Well, to, to some extent, yeah. Jenny and I do love getting out in the, in the natural world, and we are both photographers, so okay. we, especially, we especially enjoy photographing the natural world. Great. Well, let's transition to the book. And I want to start because this is a good segue from some of your biography to the book itself. Here I am. It's a big, heavy, thick book. First of all, congratulations. This is a really significant achievement. And I know uh, the three of us all enjoyed spending several hours. I, I, I can't promise that since we got the book a few days ago, we read the whole thing. But we did spend uh, several hours pouring through different things, and it's a great resource. At the very end, on the conclusion, I'll just read. You have a little bit about your biography. Because I entered seminary nine months after my conversion, my seminary days became very influential in forming my theological perspective. The seminary I attended, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, was deliberately, under the wise leadership of Kenneth Conser, a broadly evangelical institution with an attempt to represent various theological traditions. Nevertheless, the theology I was taught there was broadly reformational, with an emphasis on the reform side of this broad movement. At the same time, my involvement with the church I was attending and ultimately serving exposed me to the Baptist small b tradition. I therefore emerged a reformed uh, reform Baptist. Some might say submerged. <laughs> uh, yeah, although the reformed part eventually was modified a bit with Lutheran influences. So that's the, those are really helpful few sentences to sort of position who you are. Uh, thinking about this book and just about your teaching and scholarship in, in general, which is uh, of the highest level, how do you balance, on the one hand, understanding and being transparent about your own theological influences and tradition, and yet, I see so many people today who just want to write off any sort of theological or exegetical scholarship as just uh, hidebound to some kind of ism and not really objective. So what's, what's the fine line as a scholar saying, well, here's who I am and where I come from. And yet, as you said earlier, I absolutely want to be as tethered to the text as possible. And we really do believe that uh, you know we're we're not we're not hardcore postmoderns who think you can't actually know some things objectively. So just talk about your own theological biography and how that influences or doesn't influence what you do in this book. 
Yeah, that's a great uh, question, and it's an issue all of us wrestle with, I think, uh, who are involved in the uh, academic world these days. Uh, I think there is a general recognition that none of us comes to the text with a blank slate, and to pretend that we do is simply to kind of hide the obvious or to attempt to hide the obvious. Uh, we've all been formed in certain ways, whether that's a uh, form formation at a very simple way through Sunday school, through parents, through churches we attend, uh, or formed in a more deliberate way as I was uh, because of the teaching I received at Trinity and elsewhere. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm upfront about that. That's I'm a kind of reformational guy. That's where I come from. That's where I found over the years of resonance between scripture, as I study it at least, and the various traditions. Um, and again, I would want to emphasize that uh, while reformational, I hope that I hope and I'm not narrowly reformational in not looking beyond that tradition. I, th I think I do. But then, as you say, uh, there's importance if we're going to do justice to the text, if we're really going to believe the text is authoritative, uh, we have to let the text say, we have to allow it to form our own views. We have to allow it to change the views we come to the text with. Um, that's where I think uh, a couple of things become important. Number one, obviously, is the ministry of the Spirit at that point. Uh, I think one of the purposes God gives the Spirit to his people is to, in a sense, take us out of our subjective perspectives and allow us to see a bigger picture as the text has an impact upon us. Second is, uh, is serious and charitable interaction with other scholars uh, from other traditions who are reading the same text I am, uh, but are reading it from a different perspective. And uh, often, you know, you will have the moment where you, you, you hit, oh, this person is drawing this conclusion from the text, how in the world are they doing that? Uh, and then you back up and you realize, oh, here's where they're coming from, and here's why they can come to that conclusion. Say, oh, all right, I can I can see that now. So I've I've got to sort of uh, factor that in, or at least allow that to influence the way I'm reading the text at this point. And of course, that that remains true not just for current scholarship, but for scholars from the past. So that uh, an Augustine or a Calvin or a Wesley uh, talking about the text in their day, in their context, and culture, have a perspective to bring that, that we need to recognize as well. Uh, one more question for me before I, I throw it over to Colin and Justin. Yeah, this is uh, a big book, as I said, it's about 650 pages of text and then another 100 pages of different uh, indexes. And uh, you say at the beginning, I put, I've put a couple of exclamation points in the margin where you said you first signed the contract for this book in 2005. <laughs> Yes, that's rather embarrassing. Well, um, Justin is just happy as a publisher that you actually did turn it in after uh, all those years. What was the process like uh, in writing this book? Did it take all of those years? Is this are are these lecture notes from courses put into print? Uh, how did you go about writing such a massive book? In 2005, when I signed the contract, I'd already written a major commentary on Romans, so I had that kind of under my belt, and a lot of, of course, uh, focus on Paul there and his theology. So it wasn't that when I write the, wrote the contract is the first moment I began thinking about Paul's theology. Now, that's been something I've been thinking about, teaching about for some time. And since 2005, I've done a number of other things as well. I've written and published two or three other books along the way. So it's not as if the only thing I've been doing is Paul's theology. I learned a great deal by teaching and hearing students respond to things. That's why I have a long list of schools and churches in my preface where I have taught Paul and Romans and such subjects, because I, I honestly learned so much from all of those students I teach. Uh, so that's been an important influence over the years. As some of you will know, there is so much being written on Paul's theology these days. My frustration over these years has been for every book on Paul I read, two more were published. Uh, so obviously at that rate, you're never going to catch up. So I tried to do my best to take into account of uh, all the different uh, scholarship that was going on. Uh, that was difficult, though, to get my hands around that. And then to make sure that at the end of the day, uh, I wasn't being overwhelmed by other scholars but I was uh, being oriented to the text itself. So that's important. You don't get lost in the scholarship. 
uh, and simply cite X scholar versus Y scholar. But at the end of the day, very important, obviously, to ground everything you're doing in a book like this in your own engagement with a text. And I certainly try to do that. Well, Doug, um, it's a good segue into the question that I had planned here of a lot of people may be confused about just the way scholarship works of what a dynamic process it is and an iterative process it is and and how many small changes can take place and then how many dramatic changes also can take place. And now that you've been teaching Paul and his theology for so long, I'm wondering, what would you say is the biggest change in Pauline studies from when you started writing this book? We'll just start with this book um, to when you finished it. But if you think it's more interesting, you could you could go back to the start of your career. Um, well, yeah, let me mention two moments. Uh, and one was long before I began writing the Pauline theology, but we're all, we were, I think most of us be familiar with what's the so-called new perspective, which really got its beginnings in the late 1970s, early 1980s. So shortly after I first began to teach, that shifted the landscape of Pauline studies in a quite significant way. So that was certainly uh, one stimulus for uh, thinking about some of these things. Um, uh, in many ways, the new perspective, in my view, is to be applauded for some of the, the emphases they brought to the study of Paul that had been neglected over the years. Uh, at other points, uh, I, I fear that the new perspective uh, would tend to undercut certain reformational uh, teaching. So one of the things I've done in the Romans commentary and in the Pauline theology now is, is in a sense, I guess I could say restate fundamental reformational theology uh, in dialogue with uh, some new perspective per ideas, not rejecting them all. And again, I want to be clear about that. It's not that I'm in the mode of rejection of everything that Jimmy Dunn or Tom Wright have said. I think I've got a lot of really good things to say that we need to take on board. Uh, nevertheless, uh, again, some things that were uh, to be questioned along the way. One of the things I emphasize my students when we talk, start talking about new perspective, that in certain circles, a new perspective can be sort of viewed as the bogeyman. Oh, that's that's the negative thing. Well, there's some, some reason for that. But nevertheless, the new perspective has moderated over the years. Tom Wright's views have moderated significantly over the years. He now says that if Calvin had been the only reformer, he would not have had to have a new perspective at all, for instance. Um, quite a, a bold statement, which is probably yeah. typical writing and hyperbole, but, but nevertheless, <laughs> he's who said it. <laughs> um, and and um, that if you look at the broader landscape of Pauline studies, since I've been writing the theology, Colin, to get back to your question specifically, the so-called Paul within Judaism movement uh, has become very influential, which is much more radical than the new perspective. So uh, with respect to that movement, you know, Tom Wright and I uh, will, will, will agree and want to make some of the same points. Paul within Judaism movement basically says Paul himself remained observant to the Torah throughout his life and taught that Jewish Christians should remain observant of Torah also uh, throughout their lives. And in some more radical forms of the movement, uh, even it is argued that salvation for Jews is to be found within that Torah covenant that God gave the Jewish people. So, so here I think we have a much more radical challenge to Orthodox Christianity, broadly defined, not just Reformation here, but Orthodox Christianity going back even in the early centuries there. Uh, so, so that's one of the movements, certainly, that's, that's uh, become popular of late that I think needs response, and hopefully I've given some response to that in the book. Justin, why don't you go ahead and jump in? We've heard from our many listeners there's been an outcry I, I need more cowbell, and I need more JT. Well, we don't want to disappoint the listener, so I'll jump in. Doug, how, maybe this is a follow-up from the Paul within Judaism, but talk to our listeners a little bit about how two different scholars can read the same data, the same text. We have a, a limited amount of material for Paul, but we're, we're using the same tools to come to the text and yet can come to such radically different conclusions. So you read Paul and see the Mosaic Law as 
or Torah as the, the covenant law and that it's not to be directly guiding believers and the Paul within Judaism view takes a radically different view. Uh, one that would be more applicable to us as evangelicals, uh, the, you and Colin and I read the text correctly that uh, baptism is to be restricted to believers and someone like Kevin reads that uh, babies are to be baptized. How is it that we we can come to the same text and have the same tools of analysis and presumably be open to the guidance of the Spirit and not wanting to let the tradition guide us uh, where the text doesn't take us and we we don't read things the same way? I know that's the a perennial question, but how would you talk us through that? Sure. What what we need, of course, is a Protestant pope. Um, I'm 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 happy to run for that office if someone <laughs> to, to, to vote me in. But, is this the conclave then? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, again, as as many pointed out, that's what what some have called the Protestant problem, isn't it? Uh, that we, we have the lack of that kind of authoritative structure to determine doctrine. Uh, and so we end up with all these debates, disputes, differences of opinion about various issues. Uh, I, I think it's important to distinguish between those matters that seem to be pretty uh, rooted in the Orthodox Christian tradition and those that aren't. Uh, so... I would see this, that salvation is to be found in Christ alone, for instance, as, as pretty fundamentally rooted in the tradition. Uh, that should be something that, that has some guiding influence. It doesn't have determinative influence, but it does have, I think, appropriate guiding influence. Uh, so there I'm going to want to, I'm not going to want to disagree with the Orthodox tradition unless I want to throw that tradition overboard. And of course, a lot of scholars do that. Uh, then there are these issues where within Orthodox Christianity over the years, there have been these different viewpoints. Uh, you mentioned baptism, for instance. Um, how do we read the law of Moses? To what extent, for instance, is the Sabbath command still applicable? Uh, Orthodox Christians have disagreed uh, about that. There, I think we, we have to recognize, number one, that uh, the effect of our traditions can be significant, where we're coming from can have an impact on the way we sort of read the text, which texts we give priority to. And then I think there is a great need for uh, charity at that point, for humility on our side to recognize I don't have all the answers. I need to find answers in conversation with other scholars from different traditions and viewpoints. Um, and again, to, to disagree in a charitable way so that we don't create unnecessary barriers among us. I, I, I continue to think that's one of Satan's most important strategies in fighting the Orthodox faith is to divide us and to get us squabbling together, fighting among ourselves rather than fighting some of the big isms out there that Christianity needs to confront in our day. Uh, so Doug, I have a, I think it's a related question, and this is something that Colin, Justin, and I have talked about a lot, and you can feel free to say, oh, yeah, I see that or I don't. But we've reflected before that in, in broad scope, it seems like the last maybe 10 years or so, at least in some of these controversies and maybe intramural squabbles you're talking about, some of which are very important, some less important. But it seems like there's been a, a movement away from arguing about the text and exegetical conclusions. And the argument has shifted to history or sociology. Now, I have a PhD in history, so I'm, I'm, I believe with all my heart in the importance of history. But one, one of the way, one of the areas I think you see this most clearly are some of the debates about, just to use the terms, complementarianism, egalitarianism, how do we understand Paul's, uh, the household codes, his instructions in First Timothy. And whereas, uh, you know, even 15, 25 years ago, it seemed like there were very intense debates about authentane or kephale or how to understand the, the syntax and the dynamic. It seems like some of those exegetical debates have been set aside in favor of more meta sort of historical sociological 
critiques. So I, I wonder if if you and your position as a, a bona fide New Testament scholar since this, um, what do we do about it? Is it something you've seen, something that's frustrating? I Whether you agree with whatever conclusions or not, I just wonder if it's frustrating to see, hey, these, these are issues that are not unattached to history and all the other disciplines, but they need to be rooted, our conclusions need to be rooted, first of all, in what the text says. At least that's that should be our posture as evangelical Christians. How do you navigate and pull together some of the different ways that these controversial issues are being argued about now versus a generation ago? Um, yeah, I think you're you're right about that in your analysis. Uh, I read a paper at Dallas uh, Seminary several years ago, which I entitled The Strange Silence of the Text in the Evangelical Church, uh, uh, borrowing the title from uh, a, a book by a man named Smart. Um, uh, because uh, it, it, I, I agree, uh, it, it seems like the other kinds of issues have tended to push out the issue of the text. And, and you know, as you raise the issue of uh, complementarism, egalitarianism, we have some key texts in the pastoral epistles related here that illustrates a couple of things. Number one, uh, I should have mentioned this in response to the question a moment ago, a uh, very fundamental issue is which letters you're going to count as Paul. If you're writing a Pauline theology, you've got to make that decision because in the academy, seven letters of Paul are accepted as clearly authentic. And very often, Theologies, then, of Paul are built only on those seven epistles, uh, with some reference, perhaps, here and there to the others. Uh, so obviously, if, if, you, if you select your database in a certain way, you're going to come up with different conclusions. So that's a fundamental decision you have to make. So, uh, you know, I argue at the beginning of my book uh, that I think Paul is the author, in some sense, at least, of all 13 of the letters attributed to him and that our theology of Paul needs to be built squarely on all 13, not picking and choosing one or the other. Because that's how some of these more radical conclusions sometimes emerge. You pick and choose evidence. You dismiss certain letters as unpauline or deuteropauline, or you view certain texts as uh, scribal additions to the text that Paul didn't write. And of course, when you follow that procedure, then it's pretty easy to come up with almost any conclusion you want. Now, the problem that, that I see here is that our exegesis always takes place in the context of these larger background issues. You know, what Paul says about certain issues are naturally going to uh, be affected by the culture to which he's speaking. So when he tells the women in 1 Corinthians 11 to wear the veil or to wear their certain hairstyle, um, I think all scholars, or most scholars at least, recognize, okay, Paul is addressing a particular cultural phenomenon of how women wore their hair or did or did not wear the veil in his day. Uh, that has to affect the way we understand the text and the way we apply it. The point then is that our exegesis can never be separate from those broader concerns about background and culture of the time. So the, the point here is to make sure that as we use that background information, we don't allow it to sort of have ruling power over the text. Uh, and that's where the balance is needed. Yeah, I, I have to read every text uh, in the light of its context and situation, recognize that all our New Testament texts, all Pauline texts are situationally affected. But I, I need to come up with uh, also uh, a clear evidence from the text itself for the direction it's wanting to take us. And there, there's a balance there. And I agree, good, careful exegesis mm. has tended to get shunted aside a little bit in some of the more recent discussions of, of these kinds of issues. So let me ask a follow-up, and then I'll, I'll have Colin and Justin jump back in. But... Uh, I think this is accurate, and you can correct me if you don't want to own any of these labels, Doug, but I would say in, in many points, you, uh, with the highest academic acumen, end up landing on, for lack of a better term, traditional conclusions. So, for example, did Paul receive a call or a conversion? 
you say, well, it was, you know, certainly an, there's an element of a call, but let's not miss that there were real elements of a conversion uh, on homosexuality. You're careful to say, well, this isn't the only sin. We shouldn't make it seem like an unforgivable sin. But Paul does say that same-sex intimacy is is sinful on some of the issues related to to men and women. Again, you you with a I would say a gentle touch are showing the different views and not wanting to be extreme in application. And yet you land in a a traditional place. I think that the household codes still are authoritative, and Paul's instructions in First Timothy two are not simply rooted in the the time. They are, but they're anchored in transcultural things. Uh, forensic justification. You make a very strong argument for justification as forensic only language. Even when you talk about, is the gospel really code for anti-imperial claims? You say, well, yeah, someone might understand it that way, but there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that that's mainly what's going on. So I, I agree with all of those, and I find them very helpful. I wonder if in your work as, uh, I, I would say, a, uh, you know, a very well-respected scholar, do you get pushback coming to these conclusions? I mean, obviously all scholars do, but w- what is it like as you, uh, in many of these controversial areas, reach, I would say, traditional conclusions? How are these received? How do students handle them? How do, you know, SBL, other sort of professional organizations, what's it like to be Doug Moo in these worlds? You know, here's where I have to confess that I've probably not engaged uh, with uh, the broader sweep of academic scholarship as well as I could have. Um, Yes, I attend things like SBL, for instance, where you get a wide range of scholars talking about things. I have debated people like Tom Wright and those kind of scenarios a number of times over the years. Uh, but I've not spent a lot of time there. And the fact is, I think all of us experience this, we can receive a lot of affirmation as long as we are speaking and teaching to our like-minded friends. You know, boy, I can think I'm, I am must be this really guru kind of guy sometimes. I go to certain places where people just, oh, Doug Moo's here, he's teaching us. And the reason for that is because they're coming from the same stream of tradition that I inhabit. And of course, I can get affirmation from that. Uh, the question is, again, whether uh, that affirmation comes from, from the broader uh, world, from the broader perspective of scholarship, from people that, that differ from us. And that's where I have to, you know, uh, again, admit that perhaps I am overly traditional, perhaps I'm overly influenced by the tradition I was taught in and raised in and Still I'm glad for all of your traditional conclusions. Well, well, thank you. You see, I, again, I could come on a podcast like this, say, oh, these guys like me, you know? They, yeah, that's true. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> and and I don't make any apology for that on the one hand. I feel that's been my calling. Uh, I'm not uh, this, this inventive, creative scholar who's uh, developing new ideas and theses and in very interesting ways. I'm kind of a plotter. Uh, trying to give exegetical ground to what I think are uh, theological views that that, um, uh, have been argued by some good people in the past and shouldn't be thrown overboard just because they're from the past. That's, you know, the chronological snobbery that C.S. Lewis warns us about, that only the latest view is the right or the important view, uh, where there have been certain certain views uh, argued in the past very well by by people that we should uh, have a little more respect for maybe than we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well put. Justin. Let me jump in here, Doug, with a question uh, more specifically on the family and women in the church. On chapter 24, you you say this line, and I I think our readers would, or not our readers, uh, our listeners would find this suggestive and helpful. You say, rather than viewing Paul's advice about the home, women, and institutions of the world as unfortunate accommodations to the structures of the world of Paul's day, we may instead view them as a response to an unbalanced appropriation of the all one in Christ principle. Could you unpack that a little bit? Because I think that will be a a new way of looking at the issue for some folks. Yeah. uh, And again, this is where I'm a little controversial, I think Uh, when I have, and and let me, I'll explain where I'm going with this in a minute, but 
when I tackled the slavery issue in my writing a commentary on Philemon, um, I came to realize that, that there is some truth to the idea that some have argued about a kind of trajectory that we need to follow in reading the NT on some of these things. Um, uh, I, I think it's, again, uh, 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 challenging to us at least that when Paul addresses Christian slave owners, he doesn't tell them to free their slaves. Uh, and if slavery is a moral evil, why doesn't he say that? So I, I think there is something to this trajectory idea. And when we think about that in terms of Paul's teaching on women then, uh, moving outside of the specific exegetical evidence to the larger sweep of teaching, I think we can come up with kind of two main ways of reading Paul. Number one says, uh, Paul is setting a trajectory of liberation that we need now to extend in our day even further than the New Testament explicitly does. So there should be, for instance, complete equality in marriage. Women should not be restricted from any kind of ministry role in the church, because that's the direction the text is taking us. Uh, the other way to read some of these texts, uh, and I, I should say then that texts that seem to limit that are texts that simply are saying, for now, Christians should follow the culture of their day, uh, let women be submissive, uh, let wives be submissive, and, and so forth, because that's the culture there. So that's though those texts talking about submission are simply culturally bound restrictions. So that, that's one way to read the restrictions. Um, the other way to read them, uh, again, is to see here Paul responding to an overly enthusiastic kind of liberation movement. Uh, that uh, people taking the, the great Pauline slogan of one in Christ, which is important and fundamental, and we dare not uh, you know, take anything away from what Paul means by that, but taking it to a point where, okay, men and women are fully uh, at the same level in marriage. Uh, they ha uh, Women uh, have, have the right to do anything they want to in the church. And Paul will say, no, you know, I, I'm wanting to pull you back from that a little bit. That, yeah, there is a new liberating spirit in Christ for men and women equally, but that liberation tendency does not overturn some of the role relationships that God has built into his creation of men and women. So I think, again, two fundamental ways you can read those restrictive texts. I, I think, again, that the, the way Paul grounds his restrictions in Scripture, uh, in the OT, and not just in current culture, tilt me to move one direction on that. Let me ask a related question also comes from chapter 24, which is living in the new realm. And just for our, our listeners, of course, we encourage you to get this book. It's laid out really helpfully. The first half goes through all of the Pauline epistles. And I would think for pastors, students, people leading Bible studies, that's going to be a real, really helpful section. Of course, they're shorter than commentaries, but they're longer than an introduction you might get at the beginning of a commentary. They're, they're nice chapters that walk through the different themes and analyze the different book by book. And then the second half of the book has these chapters all centered on the new realm. And here on page 631, you say, discussion of marriage leads naturally into some words on sex. In Paul's day, as in ours, sex was an area in which biblical standards clashed especially harshly with contemporary mores. We are not surprised then that he warns his Gentile converts about their conduct in this sphere of life. As I noted above, sex is the area of sinfulness that Paul most often mentions in his vice lists. So two-part question, why was it such an area of conflict in Paul's day? And what, what are your thoughts metaphysically or otherwise why you think it continues to be such an area of controversy in our day that the the sexual the way we live our lives sexually is one of the the clearest demarcations for Paul between living life in Christ or outside of Christ why why was that yeah here here i i easily can get in into matters that are far over my pay grade but it, it, it does seem to me that, that, you know, sex is a powerful impulse rooted in us uh, and that uh, it is not un unexpected, I guess I would say, therefore, 
uh, for uh, the, the sexual impulse to be uh, very significantly affected by the worldview that we, we hold. And I think that God has built that sexual impulse into us, but it is so powerful that it easily becomes unrestrained, uh, unrestricted, uh, expressed in all kinds of ways that, that uh, counter what, what Scripture talks about as the boundaries we are to observe. So I, I think that it's not surprising that in Paul's day, as in ours, and of course in many days in between, that that has become a particular point of friction for us because it kind of expresses our humanity and where our fallenness comes to expression uh, easily and clearly. Um, so yeah, in Paul's day, again, that was a, a fundamental difference between the, the Jewish Christian perspective on sex and the pagan uh, perspective. Uh, in our post-Christian world, uh, we see the same thing, where many of the debates we're having right now uh, have to do in one way or another with sex or gender. Um, and again, that's not surprising once the, uh, the Jewish-Christian worldview is left behind. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things, Doug, that I love about this book, and just for listeners, we're talking again about a theology of Paul and his letters, Biblical Theology of the New Testament with Doug Moo. And um, there, were, there were things that should be really obvious, but that I somehow hadn't thought about until you pointed them out. And one of the things I wondered, you know, fairly early on in the book, you asked the question or you observe that Paul doesn't often cite Jesus's teaching or even his life apart from his death and resurrection. What do you conclude of the significance of that from our perspective, perhaps omission? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. These are the kinds of questions that I hope people don't ask me. Uh, you'll think after after 15 or 16 years, you know, of working on Paul's theology, teaching it in various ways, that one would have all the answers, you know. Uh, uh, and I think the one thing perhaps I've learned more than anything else uh, in writing this book is humility. Um, uh, unanswered questions, or at least questions that I still don't have as satisfactory an answer to as I would like to have. And to be honest, that's one of them. Uh, again, I think we can offer some explanation. Paul uh, is teaching Christians most of the time who don't have any clear roots, you know, in Palestine or in the uh, history of Jesus uh, during his lifetime, obviously in Palestine. Um, uh, for Paul, the death and resurrection of Christ are so fundamentally uh, earth-shaking and transformative that he, he, he reads his ethics out of those events more than anywhere else. At the end of the day, though, I still think it's a little surprising Paul doesn't quote Jesus more often than, than he does. He just doesn't do that. Uh, one point to be made, and I think I make that in the book, is, of course, that uh, sometimes simply quoting a person is not the best way to reflect their views. Sometimes you best uh, sort of uh, reflect people's views by, by absorbing them yourself into your own viewpoints and teaching them and expressing them in your own words. And so, so here is, I think, the most important point that uh, I, I didn't have time in the book to do this as much as I would have liked to. You know, you get to the end of the book and you say, here are all the things I didn't do. I wish I had. Then it would have been a 1,200-page book um, of, of draw clear connections between Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching. That's the most important point for us, I think. That, that ultimately what Paul is doing in his theology is organically connected to the teaching of Jesus. It grows out of Jesus' own teaching perspectives. Uh, and that's the most, most fundamental thing here, I think. And, and that, that, I think, argument can be made very well. One, one quick observation on that. Yeah. As he mentioned, he does not quote, Paul does not quote Jesus very often. But the irony here is that one of the times he does quote Jesus, Acts 20, 35, it is better to give than to receive. We don't have anywhere else. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the irony yeah, that. Go ahead, Justin. Yeah. <laughs> Doug, talk to us a little bit about N.T. Wright and his influence, uh, because there's, there's a certain set of folks who read Pauline scholarship, and someone like Tom Wright's work has broken out beyond just the the nerds among us who read Pauline monographs for a living. Um, you know, so I, I'm thinking here of a pastor 
who has younger people in their church who are reading right and uh, what does he get right? Uh, that pun is uh, often used and abused. And what does he get wrong? What What are the things that his work has shown us that perhaps others haven't? And where are some places where you would offer caution to, especially the younger Christian who is enamored by his brilliance and his ability to wordsmith and to offer synthesis in a way that feels like nobody else is seeing this or saying this? You know, Justin, I think I'm going to have to uh, decide not to answer that directly. Uh, it would be very hard for me here off the top of my head to come up with any kind of a list of things he gets right and things where I would want to quarrel with him. I would say in general that, um, and, and again, I know that, that not everyone would agree with this uh, so sentiment. I'm very thankful for Tom Wright. Uh, because I think uh, his ability to uh, present the fundamentals of the gospel in various contexts where people are hearing that gospel through him uh, is a real gift to the church, and I, I appreciate that. Um, again, as I said before, I think um, uh, I, I respect him for having moderated some of his views over the years. Uh, he's listened to people, um, uh, and I appreciate that about him. Yes, there are, again, points where I disagree with him in terms of where I think he unnecessarily uh, creates uh, issues for traditional reformational theology that, that he maybe not doesn't need to do. So my, my advice to pastors would be don't read Tom Wright in isolation. Uh, if you're going to read Wright on a subject, read someone else also on the subject. Uh, so you kind of get a balanced perspective. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh... I think you do that really well in the book, Doug. No, no one can read this and think that you you don't appreciate the the brilliance and the many fine insights that N.T. Wright has had. And he, he's written so much. And at various levels, you know, there's that old joke of somebody calls up Tom and says, I, I, "Yeah, I'm trying to get a hold of Tom Wright," and the secretary says, "Well, he's he's." writing a book at the moment. Um, can you hold for 15 or 20 minutes? Uh, <laughs> nice. Okay. He'll, he'll, he'll come right back. He's, he's just cranking out books. But for example, you know, you talk in chapter 19 about the story of Israel and you say, uh, writes Israel still an exile scenario rightly draws attention to a key dynamic in the story of redemption, this pattern of sin, exile restoration. And that's, I remember when I was in seminary, uh, 20 years ago now, reading right. And that was a really big insight that we were reading. Ah, Israel, they're, they're still in exile. And there's something to that. And yet you helpfully go on, and I, I won't quote the whole thing, but you suggest four concerns. And one, you say he shifts the emphasis from geographic to spiritual. Other concerns you talk about, end of exile is a much more complex reality. And you say, Paul's discussion of sin is more universal on the one hand and more individual at the same time. So just seeing Israel in exile can make it seem like it's just a national component and this isn't applicable to all of us who need redemption and all of us uh, universally and individually who are sinners. And so I commend you for that because uh, you're, you're pointing out, and this is why I think Wright has been good, to remind some of us hey, where does this parable, where does this story of Jesus, where does this fit? Don't leave the story of Israel out of this. Where, What is Jesus doing here in Israel's national story? And yet I think you're right to draw us back and say, that that's helpful. And to the degree that we're looking forward to yet unrealized blessings, um, there's something to this exile language. And yet we really need to be careful with it. Which leads me, we'll just have a couple more questions, Doug. Thank you for giving us this time and talking about this book. The, the subtitle is The Gift of the New Realm in Christ. So I don't know if you'd say new realm is is a centering idea. That word center, you say, can mean different things. But obviously, it's a it's a key concept for you in that the second half of the book, all the chapters have to do with the new realm. So what do you mean by that? And why do you see that as so central to Paul's thought? Yeah, it, it, this is, again, a fundamental kind of methodological issue when you're trying to figure out how can I synthesize 
the thought of Paul expressed in 13 letters written over probably around 15 years to different churches on different occasions, dealing with different problems. You've got this, 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 this whole mess, as it were, of Paul all over the place. How do you synthesize that? And in order to synthesize that, I think you need to figure out some kind of framework, uh, a framework that hopefully arises to some extent from Paul himself and is not just imposed on him. Uh, over the years, I, I, had, I had just become convinced, and I taught my New Testament theology class along these lines at Wheaton for many years, kind of testing out the idea uh, that it seemed to me that this idea of realm transfer was, was pretty fundamental in the way Paul was expressing his theology. The contrast of the old realm of sin, death, and Satan, uh, and the new realm, uh, dominated obviously by Christ, righteousness, new life, and so forth. Uh, and that this uh, gave us a really nice framework. Uh, End of Romans 5 is a key place where Paul, I think, expresses this idea and I would expand from there to Romans 5 through 8 as a whole, where I think, again, we have a key Pauline text using that terminology. New Realm also helpfully uh, connects with the theme of kingdom from the teaching of Jesus, as most identify kingdom as perhaps the most important centering idea in the teaching of Jesus. And of course, there are a number of Old Testament scholars who would argue that kingdom of God is fundamental to Old Testament theology as well. So I think realm has the virtue of arising from some things Paul is saying and connects us with Jesus and the OT. Uh, it all it it has its limits, of course, and so I hope I recognize throughout the book places where we need to move beyond that framework or add a different kind of perspective to that framework in order to do full justice to Paul. Uh, two final questions, uh, one more specifically about the book and then one sort of broader question. Uh, you, you go on in a very helpful section talking about substitution and why looking at the atonement as substitution is a, a key Pauline idea and one that holds the others together. And yet you talk about various objections to substitution. I know it's always dangerous to try to, to try to impute motives, but I, I wonder besides the 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 exegetical conceptual critiques to to substitution which i think you respond to very well do you do you have a thought on why this seems to be a perennial objection is there something at a deeper level going on why does it seem like every generation a new group of books or articles needs comes out saying well this whole idea of substitution um, no, 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 that's not really what, what Paul's about here. And then people like you need to come back and say, well, actually, that's not the only thing he's doing, but everything else kind of needs to have substitution to work. Why, why do we keep having this same conversation? Well, I, I suspect there are a variety of, of reasons why that, that issue comes up. But let me just name one where uh, here we have another, in a sense, uh, question that I didn't come up with a neat answer to. Uh, and that is, that as you read Paul, and people like Michael Gorman in recent years have really emphasized this, um, as you read Paul, it's clear that he has a great emphasis on what we might call participation. Uh, how do we gain the benefits of Christ's work? We gain those benefits because we were with him. We died with him. We were buried with him. We are raised with him. Uh, that participational logic uh, seems to, uh, to, to stand in some contrast to the substitutionary logic. Uh, and so one reason why people wonder about substitution is because they find in Paul, legitimately, this really great emphasis on participation. That's what Paul is fundamentally trying to teach. That's what he is uh, thinking about in terms of the work of Christ on our behalf. Um, uh, and again, if you pursue participation in a kind of full and final way, there's not much left for forensic substitution. So I, I can understand that, and I, I try to deal with that in the book. I, I ultimately don't come to as neat a conclusion as I would like to, and I kind of end up saying both are clearly there in Paul. Uh, there is the forensic logic of Christ dying in our place and for us. 
on the one hand, that's clear, I think, in Paul. Uh, there is also very clearly the focus on our dying with Christ uh, to uh, gain the benefits uh, that we have in him. Both those logics are there in Paul, and the question then is how to integrate them. And uh, some scholars choose one or the other. Um, uh, I am uh, in the mode, as my wife would be glad to tell you, of the wishy-washy Charlie Brown type, uh, where I want to say, uh, yes, both and, uh, b- b- both are there. Oh, good. L- let me finish with this, Doug. And this comes from uh, a friend of yours, a friend of ours, uh, Don Carson, written several years ago in The Gagging of God. And he's reflecting on Mark Knoll's book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which is always, it seems to be, in, in people's conversation. And uh, Don says he, he finds much in the book that he finds helpful, and he says there's certainly an intellectual shallowness among many populist approaches of some leaders. But then uh, Don turns a bit. He says, I worry less about the anti-intellectualism of the less educated sections of evangelicalism than I do about the biblical and theological illiteracy or astonishing intellectual compromise among its leading intellectuals. Evangelicalism has many sons and daughters whose primary vocation is the life of the mind. Writers, thinkers, scholars, academicians, researchers, and field after field. They are not inferior to other thinkers in similar fields. But with rare exceptions, they have not made the impact they might have because their grasp of biblical and theological truth has rarely extended much beyond Sunday school knowledge. In the main, they think like secularists, and bless their insights with the odd text or biblical cliché. They cannot quite be accepted by the secular guilds, unless, of course, they keep their mouths shut completely about their faith, and they cannot revolutionize intellectual life in the West because they do not think like consistent Christians who take on the status quo and seek to replace it with something better. D.A. Carson, Gagging of God, also published by Zondervan, 1996, page 483-84, if someone wants to find it. So, Don's argument there is, yes, there is a poverty of intellectual life among many rank-and-file Christians and many populist leaders, but he says uh, his even greater worry are for the evangelical intellectuals that they not lose their biblical moorings and their consistent Christian faith. So you can answer it on a broad level or on a personal level. What do you see as necessary, or what have you done in your own life, Doug, to maintain these high intellectual academic standards while also retaining your personal vibrant walk with the Lord and your commitment to biblical truth through and through? Oh, well, that's a wide ranging issue you raise. And just off the top of my head, I think I've got three responses. Uh, One, while not disagreeing with Don, uh, I would want to affirm the reality of many uh, colleagues of mine at Wheaton, for instance, in various uh, fields of study who are, who are extremely faithful uh, to their Christian faith and are, who are working hard to keep up with uh, what's going on in the Christian faith. Um, uh, one, one faculty member at uh, Wheaton in the, in the sociology area has, has done two degrees in the graduate school in uh, theology and in exegesis, for instance. And I've had the privilege of teaching him in Greek exegesis classes and so forth. So I, I, wouldn't want to, I would want to recognize people like that who are, yes, uh, intellectuals who are integrating their faith very well. Um, two, you, you mentioned, uh, and maybe I should have answered, I should have said something about this to an earlier question you asked about certain issues that are not given kind of exegetical uh, focus as much as they should. One of the problems here is in the pastorate, it seems to me, as we are moving more and more into pastoral training that ignores Greek and Hebrew and careful exegesis. Many of our graduate programs now training pastors are dropping the languages. Preach it. So so pastors go, go out with an ability to to lead, to be the CEO of the church, as it were, uh, but they don't have the capacity to really deal with the word in a significant, in-depth way. And naturally, that's not going to figure prominently in their 
preaching or their perspectives. So uh, that's 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 a problem. For myself personally, um, I, I find that what what helps to keep me on track, especially, is my wife, my family, and my church. Uh, yes, my colleagues at, at Wheaton are great people who encourage me both intellectually and spiritually. Uh, but for me over the years, it's been uh, my wife with her, uh, you know, uh, faith uh, that encourages and keeps me on, on track, my family, my kids. Uh, I now have a son who is a professor of New Testament and a son-in-law who is a professor of Testament. So, so they, they, they keep me on track both from intellectual and, and uh, spiritual perspectives. And then, again, the life of the church. I, I try to be involved in my church. I teach Sunday school regularly in my church. Uh, and just the faith of what we might call the ordinary believer uh, often is a lesson and even a challenge to some of us who are in the academic area. Very well said. Thank you, Doug, for joining us. Colin, Justin, thank you for uh, asking good questions as well. Once again, the book just come out by Zondervan Academic, A Theology of Paul and His Letters, The Gift of the New Realm in Christ by Doug Moo, who teaches at Wheaton. Thank you so much for joining us and for this book, which is really helpful. And I know all three of us will put it on our shelves and plan to use it and consult it. Thank you for your commentary on Romans and other fine work as well. So thanks for joining us, Doug. Hey, thanks for having me. And uh, listeners, we will be back, Lord willing, in another couple of weeks. Until then, glorify God, enjoy him forever, and read a good book.